You're listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast, where we speak with founders, CEOs, investors, advisors, experts, and thought leaders in the brave new world of psychedelics and entheogenic medicines. Brought to you by Psychedelic Invest, bringing you unparalleled psychedelic investing data and analysis. Psychedelic Invest is the industry's leading resource for those looking to invest in the burgeoning psychedelic industry. For more information and to access all of the podcast episodes, check out our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. And now here's the host of the Psychedelic Invest podcast, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome everyone. This is the Psychedelic Invest podcast. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guest today is Marik Hazan. He is founder at Tabla Raza. We're going to talk about the world of psychedelics. We're going to talk about investing. We're going to talk about entrepreneurship. Marik has a lot of experience, connections, data points in this industry, has been working with many companies, has been highly active in the space, working with many organizations, many leaders, many folks that are really doing some interesting work in the space. And he has some unique insights and perspectives. So excited for this conversation, excited to see what Marik is doing and kind of where the opportunities are and where the interesting kind of channels are in terms of where we're going with psychedelics, what might be in the near future here, what might be in the far future, but really kind of where we're going and what the opportunities are. So with all that, Marie, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Bruce. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Before we dive into Talbaraza and everything you're doing today, I'd love to get some background. How did you get into investing? How do you get in business? What is your professional background? How do you get into psychedelics? Give us a little of the story. Yeah, definitely. So Most of my background has been in early stage entrepreneurship. So I was building out incubator and accelerator programs for a while, helped build out the entrepreneurial ecosystem at Yale, advised on some of the marketing foundations at YC and ran growth for many of their top startups, have helped also build out some of other incubators and accelerators across the country. So have been working with super early stage startups and founders for quite some time now, about a decade. And around five years ago, I saw that there was an opportunity in the psychedelic space, had also contributed to several pretty interesting, I would call them maybe counterculture movements, the sex worker rights movement, the centralized governance movement. And so was maybe more aware than most other folks that there were kind of these movements at the fringes of society that were becoming less taboo and more likely to one, receive capital and have a lot of other infrastructure built around them. And so in 2018, kind of went down a rabbit hole, started researching everything that was happening in the psychedelic space. There wasn't much at the time. It was, you know, really just kind of compass a tie. I don't know if the loosest was really even talking too much about psychedelics at that point, but they were around and incorporated. So it was really at the very beginnings and just saw that, you know, the writing on the wall that there was about to be capital flowing in. And so started to really focus in on the space, meet, you know, every entrepreneur that was coming up, finding investors that were interested and started basically yeah, creating as many connections as I could in this space since then. And maybe how is psychedelics for you similar or different than some of these other emerging kind of markets, emerging industries? Give me a little compare and contrast. Yeah, so they're similar in certain ways in, in terms of kind of how like cyclical dynamics unfold. So for instance, you know, a lot of these kind of counterculture sorts of movements Oftentimes, because they are taboo, they get bucketed into kind of advocacy sort of categories into nonprofit spaces. So you'll see a lot of either nonprofits or NGOs pursuing human rights 
activism through these types of lenses. And at some point, for instance, the sex worker rights movement, you know, began to receive significant amounts of, of capital through the adult entertainment industry was basically the kind of the first lens that this was coming through. Then you had, you know, regulation changes within Europe that provided more permissibility with regards to sex work. But really in the United States and in Canada, the adult entertainment industry was kind of the main focal point for the nonprofit sector within the sex worker rights movement and preserving sex worker rights, turning into a more for-profit sector of large distributors in the first wave and kind of this generation of free advertising that included, you know, MindGeek, which still has a monopoly on most of the adult entertainment space. And today, more with cam modeling, which, you know, we could also kind of see coming in 2015, but yeah, OnlyFans and what's happened there. And so when you look at the psychedelic space as a comparative, you know, you had literally several decades of nonprofits building out the infrastructure and the advocacy side of things, making sure that the rights of individuals who were pursuing psychedelics, the unfortunate consequences of folks being jailed for using these substances for consciousness exploration, et cetera, were mitigated as much as possible. And then once the taboo started to fall away, once there was a very clear pathway towards monetization, towards profitability, you see these groups coming in typically coming up with one specific innovation or one specific path to capital and a for-profit sector forming around it. And so I think that, you know, that's happened across many of these different movements. And that means that capital begins to flow from the non-profits to the for-profits. Grassroots and advocacy groups oftentimes get left behind. And, you know, there's other kind of consequences. And then a for-profit sector emerges, first one that is typically quite collaborative, and then one that as, you know, competition increases as larger capitalizers begin to enter in, then the kind of communal dynamics begin to be left a little bit more to the wayside. And you begin to see kind of several eras of entrepreneurs, investors, philanthropists that begin to define the movement in a whole bunch of ways. But yeah, you could write a couple books on some of these dynamics, but that's the general (laughs) sense of what takes place. Yeah, no, I get it. And I guess from an investment point of view, like if you look at people that are looking to, you know, fund companies early stage and, you know, obviously, you know, with appropriate risk kind of profile, but, you know, looking to place money and see some wins and get returns. I mean, how is psychedelics kind of play into this or what are the dynamics around psychedelics from an investor point of view at this point? Yeah, definitely. Well, I, th- I think that the investing landscape for psychedelics has dramatically changed even just in the last, you know, 18 to 24 months. I think we've seen, you know, of course, in the last like six to eight months, we've seen kind of the first few bankruptcies, the first few failed companies. So I think people have become more cautious because of that. But at the same time, I think there's been both a leaning into psychedelics and also a broadening of the psychedelic vision or the psychedelic thesis, you could call it. So, you know, there's really no venture firm in the space today. This wasn't the case, you know, 18 months ago that is still specifically dedicated just to psychedelics. Like people are still pitching their venture firms, their investment theses around psychedelic assisted therapy and what will happen as a result. But basically every venture firm that I know of, and I keep in pretty regular touch with everyone who's in the space and and investing, they are looking to expand to things that are maybe a little bit more tangential, maybe more preventative care, maybe more mental health, maybe something that's a bit more tech focused. But it is difficult to, you know, build an entire industry, I think, around such a medicalized procedure, unless you're focused really on kind of the drug development piece, which we're still seeing kind of how that unfolds 
we'll see what happens with Maps and some of these other companies over the next couple of years of time. But we still just don't have you know sophisticated operators within the space to really be able to lead this movement. You don't have drug development veterans that have you know a couple decades under their belt that are leaving and starting companies in the space. Some of them are advising. Some of them have joined firms as partners, like our own Maria Velkova. But it's still a rarity to see experienced operators within the sector, at least on the drug development side. And then even if you're talking about therapeutics in general, even if it's digital therapeutics or technology of any sort, most of the investors who are in the space, most of the capital in the space has never really explored or experimented or uh, been dedicated to a therapeutic sector. There's not necessarily a pattern recognition. There's not necessarily a significant knowledge base of how to invest in these sorts of companies. And so I think we're still seeing how this will unfold over the next couple of years with this lack of operators and with a less experienced investor base. Yeah. I guess, why haven't we seen operators come in? Is this too early? Is there something fundamental about psychedelics that is problematic or is causing blocks here? I mean, what's lacking or what's holding this up? Yeah, I think that there could be a couple different things. I think, one, there still is a taboo. Folks are still just trying to get acquainted with psychedelic-assisted therapy being highly accessible for folks. I think the MDMA, the rollout of MDMA and the rollout of psilocybin will really change that and make people more comfortable with the fact that these are actually medicines that can be administered in hospitals and our medical systems and it's something worth pursuing. I think that there's also, you know, with larger biotechs that we're talking to on the investor side, they're all just looking for data. You know, they're looking for more data. And I think, you know, there has been some really promising early stage results in the psychedelic space, but We need to see significantly more data, especially from these earlier stage companies before we really see larger biotech forms, larger drug development firms start to play a role. Now, in the last week, I think it was Otsuka Pharmaceuticals that acquired either Mindset Pharma or one of the other psychedelic companies in the space. So clearly there's interest, clearly they're waiting and beginning to play some sort of role. But I think we have a couple years left until we really see some significant participation, especially from larger biotech investors who want to see the data readouts to be able to participate more fully. And, you know, I, I think in the next 12 months, we're going to see those first few people from Otsuka, if that was the firm that acquired, which I believe it was. I think we'll start to see the first few folks leaving firms like that because they're like, well, if our firm's exploring this, clearly there's something here um, and beginning to come into the space. But it's also, you know, it's a very strange way in terms of categorizing research, right? Because if you go to any sort of, you know, research university, typically you don't get research departments that are focused on a class of molecules. You get a research department that's focused on a specific indication type or a specific like physiological system. So you might have, you know, cardiac disease or neurological disorders or something like that that's studied either at a pharmaceutical company or at a research institution. There's not really, you know, research departments that are built around a specific class of molecules, which a psychedelic research institute is built around. And so we haven't necessarily had this experience before of this type of categorization for someone instead of, you know, being passionate about ending Alzheimer's because their mother might have had it. Now it's you're passionate about this class of molecules rather than the indication in a way. And I think that that also kind of throws a wrench into things and makes it a little bit less of a smooth transition to be able for an operator to say, well, I've been working on neurological disease for all of this time. I'm going to go to another firm working on neurological disease. Now it's not just 
neurological disease, it's a whole bunch of possible indications, but also the loyalty lies more with the compound than with the ailment. And I think that reframing is also kind of a, a different one than we've seen before. So that could be contributing to it as well. Yeah. I guess, how do you break down kind of categories on psychedelics right now? I mean, you mentioned a few things around therapeutic models and drug development, but like if you kind of look at sort of the world, both sort of direct, directly related to psychedelics, and then you mentioned some of these kind of tangential or associated kind of types of companies and stuff, like how do you organize the space at this point? Yeah, I think that, you know, when we started talking about the space back in 2018, 2019, the, the most natural split, which I think we're thinking about today and figuring out if there's a better way to categorize. But back then and still to today, a lot of what ourselves and many other firms use is basically kind of like a three bucket model of infrastructure, technology, and drug development. And just really trying to organize across those three. You could see kind of the infrastructure piece as more of the picks and shovels of the ecosystem, the technology piece being either digital therapeutics that are in some way tangential to psychedelics, so might be able to be used in the integration piece of psychedelic-assisted therapy or you know, other technologies that are necessary to deliver psychedelic-assisted therapy in the best way possible. And then you have kind of drug development, which is, yeah, self-explanatory there. So I would say that those have been the kind of prevailing you know, three buckets in many ways for quite a while now. But I do think that as firms begin to expand outside of this, outside of just psychedelics as a thesis and are beginning to experiment either more with preventative care, with mental health, with technology, people are beginning to redefine what those buckets look like. And so I think we'll see, you know, firms really beginning to find their niche depending on who the partners are at their firm, who their advisors are, where their capital is coming from, and beginning to really redefine and um, recategorize what the psychedelic space looks like, depending on the context through which you're coming in. Yeah. So I know a lot of folks are mentioning kind of challenges, or if you look at, I guess, the challenges of the industry growth and looking at these therapeutic models and kind of the therapeutic, you know, how people are going to be treated or, you know, engaging in, in psychedelic therapy and, you know, looking at kind of the complexity of the trip length and, you know, how much kind of therapist involvement needs to happen, all the prep work, post work, right? Like, how are you seeing, I guess, the big challenges or bottlenecks when you think about this industry going from, you know, where it is now to, you know, helping hundreds of thousands of people with the conditions that psychedelics seem to be able to treat or at least address? What are some of the big industry bottlenecks you anticipate as things grow? Yeah, definitely. I think that just the, the commercialization of, of psychedelic-assisted therapy will be basically the largest challenge that the entire sector has to overcome. Maria Valkova, who's the other managing partner of our firm, is really one of the best people in the space to talk to about this. You know, she's a drug development veteran and, and spent a couple decades really working specifically on some of these pieces. So she can really dive into some of the nuances here. But in terms of commercialization, you know, you have basically a treatment that has never really been rolled out in a way like this. You've never really had a drug in combination with a therapy that's being rolled out. You never had, you know, these kind of extensive treatments that have these multiple phases in the way that psychedelic assisted therapy does. You haven't necessarily had these, you know, kind of strange placebo effects 
that are difficult to account for in the psychedelic assisted therapy process and in clinical research. So I think that there's a lot of these pieces that tie into how does this actually roll out? How does this become commercialized after you do collect some of the preliminary research, even if you can get really good results, then how are doctors really prescribing this? You know, who are the individuals who are going to be accredited to be able to actually facilitate this? If it's not going to be big pharma, commercializing this, which that's typically been the commercialization engine for, you know, these types of medical treatments. If it's not going to be big pharma, then what are the commercialization channels for psychedelic assisted therapy? So all of these are really big questions that, you know, no one really knows the answer to. It might be MAPS building it. It might be another company building it. Big pharma might come in and begin to really acquire many of these assets over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months, possibly, you know, further down the road. But the commercialization piece of how does this actually get to the end customer is a process that will take billions of dollars in invested capital over the next few years and many, many hurdles to be crossed for the entire sector for us to actually roll out these very novel and unique treatments relative to what we've seen to date. Yeah. Let's talk about Big Pharma a little bit. I'm just kind of curious. It's been interesting to see, I guess, the dynamics on the Big Pharma side. I mean, right now, you know, Big Pharma has a lot of drugs that are making not a small amount of money in many of these conditions. You know, psychedelics, I think, have the potential of challenging some of these things or at least providing kind of alternative therapies or alternative solutions that could, you know, be competitive in these spaces. I mean, how do you see big pharma kind of approaching this? Because on one hand, it's highly competitive. On the other hand, you know, they want to stay in the game. Like, what have you noticed in terms of how they're approaching it and what angles they're taking in terms of getting involved in psychedelic therapies? Yeah, well, I think that they're all definitely watching. They're all watching. They're paying attention. They're seeing, like, what is the data that's coming out? How promising is this? And I think that they're crafting a strategy to understand, you know, listen, you know, if our competitor is making a large portion of its sales through, for instance, the sale of SSRIs, then for us, is it a competitive advantage to be the, the you know big pharma company that actually takes psychedelics to market and commercializes this and can compete with a company that's leading in SSRI sales? So I think that there's big pharma is not just, you know, one big unit. I think that that's like what a lot of the psychedelic space feels oftentimes in villainizing big pharma is that, you know, big pharma is this big villain, you know, either they're going to completely ignore psychedelics or is going to threaten their sales. They're going to try to suppress it um, or they're going to come in and try to buy the whole thing out. Well, it's a lot of different companies and those companies are in competition with one another. And I think some of them will see psychedelics as a competitive advantage that they can play in, which will accelerate parts of the movement and yeah, get them on board and either acquiring early stage assets, continuing to do more research, but at least having some sort of strategy around what they want to do relative to psychedelic assisted therapy. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about the community right now in terms of, you know, the folks that are looking to develop, promote, you know, extend psychedelic assisted therapies and use of psychedelics for healing and various modalities. How are you kind of seeing kind of the community organized and what are you seeing kind of the relationship between some of the traditional psychedelic practices and practitioners and some of the new folks getting into the space and even some of kind of these new compounds and you know new kind of medicines and things then and you know the kind of the medical side of things like how do you see this playing out yeah i think that there's the OG community, if that's, you know, what we can call them is the folks mm-hmm. who have been around for, you know, half a decade plus at this point within the ecosystem. I think that there's maybe there's a continued nervousness around what will continue to change and happen. But I also think that there's sometimes a lack of humility around, 
you know, how quickly these changes are happening and what can be done and what can't be done and the roles to play. And on the other side, I think the folks who are newer to the space, I think that there's a lot of different types of folks. You know, there's students who are, for the first time, able to really pursue psychedelic research as a career path. There's, you know, extremely large investment groups that are, for the first time, getting interested in this and beginning to buy up analytics data on the sector and try to understand everything that they can. And, you know, they might be some of the first billion-dollar deployers within the space. And so, you know, these are things that are happening as well. Some are more connected to the OG community. Some are less connected. I think that it really varies depending on who you're talking to. But I think that the overall challenge that we're going to face is that there's very clearly a lack of any sort of multi-stakeholder alignment and, you know, the seeking of that by most members in the space, whether they're on the nonprofit side, the for-profit side, the old school, the new school. And I think that that's going to create a lot of problems in the long term. I think it's going to make nonprofit organizations weaker. I think it's going to make for-profit organizations less sustainable in the long term because they're not necessarily as patient focused and as community focused as they they need to be to be able to you know maintain trust with their client base and with psychedelics ecosystem and community and so do i think that you know things will continue to move along yes but i do think that it might not be as optimally as it could be if more people were sitting around a table and having some of these conversations with one another and trying to understand each other's perspectives but this will always happen it's not you know you kind of have like a dunbar effect right of like people can only know 150 close people to themselves now we're in you know just from psychedelic science you had 12,000 people many yeah. of them had you know come to that conference on their own they didn't know a single person within the psychedelics ecosystem they were just interested to learn and now they might know some people but you know in a few years we'll be doing a 60,000 person conference so it's you know these things are going to grow super quickly exponentially the amount of people who know one another is going to fade the amount of people you can be in relationship with will dwindle relative to how many people are in the space and so it's going to fragment into people's interests areas which will probably segment the space into probably less healthy kind of tribal groups which i've seen happen in many other sort of movements that become monetized and then there's going to be a really interesting change that i think will happen which is you're going to have large scale kind of social media movements beginning to really discuss some of the, mm. you know, ethics and considerations around these pieces. And that's where we'll really see, you know, who's winning out on some of this stuff. And it's something we've seen with the sex worker rights movement, the centralized governance space, with most advocacy movements is when this stuff becomes super accessible, large communities of people will get involved and we'll see which companies become villainized and, you know, lose customers, which <laughs> companies succeed, which yeah. grassroots movements become, you know, villainized, et cetera, and kind of what happens as a result of all of those dynamics. So it'll be an interesting decade for sure. Yeah. Let's talk about the investor side a little bit. I guess who's interested these days in terms of placing money in, in psychedelic companies? Are these, you know, just pure economic people that see opportunity and want to get return? Are there people that are interested or focused on different potential outcomes, either, you know, from a medical or a social point of view, like what's driving the investment side? Yeah, it's still a pretty fair mix, but I would say that still the overwhelming majority of folks who are getting into the sector are individuals who believe in the power of psychedelic assisted therapy. Maybe they've had an experience themselves or they know someone who's had a powerful experience that has really benefited from these treatments. So I, I would say that that's typically a pretty strong combining factor. It's been rare that we've met you know, investors who are deploying and are solely there because they believe that this is, you know, the next big economic opportunity and they've never either taken a psychedelic or know someone who has. 
Typically, even if they believe it's a really large economic opportunity, they also have some sort of relationship to psychedelics. I do think that that's you know, changing in certain ways, though. I think that these larger firms that are maybe led by an individual who's had a psychedelic experience that was powerful, but maybe the, you know, 100 people that they manage have not, I think that that will create more, you know, pure capitalists investing within the psychedelics ecosystem, which will, you know, open up both pools of capital possibly, but I think also bring some more rigorous economic analysis to the economic prospects of the sector, which will be interesting to kind of analyze and, and assess over these next few years. Yeah. And any big, I mean, I guess if you had to place some bets on who some of the big players are going to be over the next couple of years for either on the data side, drug development, therapeutic models, I mean, what are some ones that are particularly interesting or that you're watching closely? Yeah. So full disclosure, some of these are companies that were invested in as well. Good. But yeah, Enthea is one of the top investments that we have within our portfolio today. They're the first company to do insurance reimbursement for psychedelic therapy through employee benefits. So we think that the world reimbursement for this therapy is going to be extremely important to pay attention to. And Enthea is leading that road. You know, some of the other companies that we think are worth paying attention to are anyone who's really able to scale therapist training in a meaningful way. This is clearly something that, you know, MAPS is unable to do and is re relying on other groups to do. Synthesis is one group that we've helped to restructure and get back up and running that's now just focused on therapist training um, and has left the retreat model behind for the time being. So that's a group that we think, you know, is going to have some pretty important impact in terms of therapist training in the space um, and another kind of picks and shovels play. On the drug development side, we've enjoyed seeing the growth of Terran Biosciences. We've enjoyed seeing the growth of Two-Way, which is a newer company specifically focused on psychedelics and anti-inflammatory properties that was founded by you know some of the probably main chemists alive today, including David Nichols around drug development and psychedelics for anti-inflammation. So th those, I guess, are a couple that we've been I'm excited to be able to support and steward. WavePaths is another one that's just an interesting concept that has continued to be an interesting story for the diversity of types of opportunities that could enter the psychedelic sector. So, you know, music as medicine and how do you actually curate the most effective medical experiences for individuals through curated music during a psychedelic session. So that's been another one that's been great to see see the growth of. So yeah, I guess those are a couple. Those are great. And anything on the kind of policy, regulatory, legal side that you're particularly looking at in terms of, you know, key changes, key, uh, I guess, you know, policy changes that might help drive the industry? Yeah, we're paying pretty close attention to Colorado and some of the work that Kevin Matthews is doing out there. We're paying pretty close attention to everything that's happening in DC, especially Melissa Lovasani's work with the Psychedelic Medicine Coalition. So there's some like really interesting things that are happening there. We're not, you know, our fund, for instance, doesn't invest in anything that is state by state dependent only really federal rollout, but we are very interested to see how these things unfold, what ends up happening as, you know, states begin to legalize for medicinal use. And, you know, also the decrim movement as well are, are supportive of, though it's not something that really affects our day-to-day -day operations in any sort of way, just out of personal interest. It's definitely something that we're paying close attention to and trying to support in whatever ways we can. Yeah. Rick, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about the work that you're doing, what's the best way to get that information? Feel free to email me. You can email me at marik, M-A-R-I-K, at energia.co. I'll send you an email that you can provide for folks. And yeah, feel free to find me online, Twitter, Instagram, not too active on, but LinkedIn as well. 
as the best place to connect with me and can chat there too. Perfect. I'll make sure that the handles and URLs and stuff are in the show notes so people can get that. Rick, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Awesome, Bruce. Thank you so much, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. You can find more episodes on all the major podcasting platforms and our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. Thank you.